0: This is a Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Stern. Our guest today is Jessica Handler. She's going to join us by phone from Atlanta. Uh, she's a writer of fiction and nonfiction, whose debut novel, The Magnetic Girl, recently has been released, and I'm looking forward to talking to her about that. Uh, it's not Jessica's first book, though. Her first book was Invisible Sisters, published in 2009, which is really like a poignant, heartbreaking memoir about her childhood and the death of her only two siblings, uh, both younger sisters. One died of leukemia and the other of a rare blood disorder. It was widely praised and named Atlanta Magazine's Best Memoir of 2009, the Atlanta Journal Constitution's Best Books of the Year, and named by the Georgia Center for the Book on uh, of 25 Books All Georgians Should Read. She followed that up with a book about uh, writing memoirs, Braving the Fire, a guide to writing about grief and loss in 2013. In addition to that, she's published many shorter pieces of essays and nonfiction that have appeared in Tin House, The Washington Post, and one of my favorite web magazines, The Bitter Southerner. We'll talk about those earlier books after a while, but I want to focus mainly on her new novel. Less than a month old, The Magnetic Girl has already received rave reviews from The Wall Street Journal which called it one of the 10 books you'll want to read this spring, and Kirkus, which gave it a starred review. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution described it this way. It's this a story that gets at the core of what it's like to be alive, honing in on modern-day feminist anxieties through the lens of a distant time when electricity was glamorous instead of merely a technological afterthought. So, Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sam. So I've known this book was coming for a long time, and I'm really glad it's it's finally here. Um, When I first met Jessica about 15 years ago, uh, it was at a a literary conference in Atlanta. And, you know, we sort of the introductory – I think we were on a panel together. Sort of the introductory Mm -hmm. introductory small talk. You asked me where I was from, and I said, well, I grew up in Cedartown, Georgia. And you paused and said, you're from Cedartown. And like the most (laughs) – the most excited euphoric uh response i've ever gotten because usually people are like uh where's that and you know i tell them oh, it's up on near you know near the alabama line about 75 miles northwest of atlanta and i thought maybe you know you had a relative there you'd live there as a child or you were born there or something mm-hmm. and uh i'm sure i asked like why you know why cedartown sure. you asked me do you know who uh lulu the magnetic girl was do you know about lulu Hurst?" Yeah, I'd grown up in Cedartown from the age of one to 18 until I went off to college. And it's not a big town, so I thought that I knew everything there was to know about Cedartown. But turns out, in the late 1800s, there was a woman named Lulu Hurst who had this amazing story. She had you know, traveled all over the country performing and doing these these tricks that I want you to describe. So um, okay. I'm really glad that you found her and that you've written this novel and I want to know, like, you know, how did you find out about Lulu Hurst? And uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about who she was. Because even I sure the folks will. in Cedartown don't know, or, or they're learning now. But, uh, you know, they're
1: learning now. And I think some of the the older people, people who maybe are in their 80s or their grandparents and parents, might have known about Lulu. Because Lulu. Lulu Hurst lived in Cedartown in the 1880s. Um, She died in Madison, Georgia in 1950. So, you know, this is a long time ago. Her death predates you and and me. My fascination with Lulu Hurst began maybe not quite 15 years ago, more like 10. My mother mother emailed me just randomly a digital clipping uh, from an engineering magazine called Cassier's Magazine. And the clipping was called The Feats of the Magnetic Girl Explained. And Cassiers published this in the late 19th century. And my mother and I were both very fascinated with stories about girls and women who were uh, remarkable or who defied physical or cultural expectations. And, you know, our reasons for that had to do with Um, how I grew up and and my mother's, my sisters and my mother's daughters, we were very just interested in what does a body mean to a girl and to the world? So my mother sent me this, this clipping, just like, wow, who is this strange girl? And I read it and I just fell in love with her. It was a story about this girl, Lulu Hurst, who had performed on early vaudeville stages in the 1880s for about 18 months uh, as the magnetic girl. She was also sometimes called the Georgia wonder And she performed feats that involved um, either holding a cane, a walking stick across from a man and um, basically throwing him or flipping a guy in a chair. And no, she didn't. We were just like, no, she didn't do that. And I was so um, enthralled with her once I'd met her this way through this article. I couldn't get her out of my mind. She reminded me in a way of myself in that, I don't know if you've ever done this, but at an elementary school slumber party, once I fooled my friends by standing in a doorway and pushing my hands against the door jamb, push, push, push. And then when you step away, your hands float up magically. It's just muscle uh, tension, but it feels like magic.
0: Okay. Well, that's cool. That's, I'm glad you found out about her. Now I know you did a great deal of research for this novel, and you you say ten years, but I think it was twelve years ago when I met you and you asked me about it. So you you must have okay. known about her and had her. She wouldn't got in your mind and wouldn't go away. But uh,
1: we got to look up when that conference was. Uh, yeah. It was the Pop Culture Association meeting in Atlanta. Um, so we can look that up. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think it well definitely at least 10 years ago. So, mm-hmm. But since then, you've done a ton of research, uh, including much about Cedartown, Georgia. So I'd like you to read briefly from the opening of Chapter 3.
1: Okay. Our home was a sunken place where green hills rolled like lumps in a blanket under a sparkling blue sky. From our porch, I studied the road to Cedartown which either was born or died at our property, depending on how a person considered it. The Town Appeal was my atlas. In that newspaper, I saw glimpses of the world beyond our dead-end road. Cotton prices, train schedules, advertisements for Cheney's lung expectorant, closeouts on knit underwear. I read the train timetables more closely than any school book. Town to Palestine, Tredegar, Singleton, all in Georgia, until the end of the line, Hell City in Alabama. 80 miles
0: in just half a day. Thanks for reading, Jessica. I want to know, what did you learn? You did a lot of research in Cedartown and talked to a lot of folks there, including me. What did you learn about not you know Cedartown, but also like this time in history in the South and in America?
1: Well, that scene is written because I went up to Cedartown and, um, Somebody in the historical society told me where their house had been, and they gave me actually I think they gave me a topographical map, and I went to that location, and there's there's no house there now. It's an empty field. The house burned down I think in the 70s. It's Collard and Valley, I, right? Yeah, yeah, Collard Valley. Collard Valley, and i
0: such in the Cedar Town.
1: Yeah, Collard is in Collard Greens, and I stood on that property. And I looked around, I just looked around, and I saw that a road kind of dead-ended into what is now a field. I saw rolling hills around me, I saw green grass, and I just stood there, and for a minute, I just imagined that I was Lulu standing on what might have been their porch, or nearby might have been their porch, because as I said, when I went there, it was an empty lot. I don't know what's there now, but I'll go find out. Um so that was wonderful. And I visited Cedartown and walked around the downtown, but mostly what I did was I used the um, the digital library. It's a virtual library of Georgia, photographs, antique photographs of Georgia. So I had photographs of what Cedartown downtown looked like in the eighteen nineties. And um, I used what's called the Sanborn Fire Maps, which um, are also available online. And the Sanborn Company made um, insurance maps up until from the Civil War up until about the 1970s. And you can download them from the Library of Congress, and it's something like 12,000 towns across the U.S. So there's the scene where I have Lulu, leaving, Lulu and her dad leaving the newspaper office and running towards um, the train station. Now, Cedartown doesn't look like that now. But I needed to know... Where was the post office? Where was the newspaper office? Where was the train station? And the Sanborn fire maps are plat maps. They will tell you where was the door, where was that stand of trees, which way was north and south. So I spent a lot of time looking at maps. I looked at vintage photographs, um, and I also did a lot of reading about the south in that era, not just Cedar Town, but the American uh, reconstruction south.
0: Yeah, I like that there's a description much later in the book where Lulu imagines, like, what New Yorkers would think of Cedartown, and it describes it mm-hmm. as the uh, the back of beyond. And, the back uh, of beyond. In that time, with travel being so difficult and, you know, phone service and certainly none of the things we There had wasn't the phone service. Yeah. There wasn't right.
1: phone service. Yeah. Okay. Lulu Hurst, actually, this isn't in the book, but she made um, – a long-distance phone call. She toured um, out west. She toured to a place called Anaconda, Montana, and I didn't put that in the book. But she apparently made a phone call, and it was like a, a media event to have her make a phone call. So telephones were not yet in common use. They were around. There's a scene in the book where uh, she does make a phone call, uh, but they weren't common at all. Uh, but you've
0: obviously been working on this novel for a long time. And, Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, I mean, did you ever want to write it as nonfiction? I know you actually, one of your essays in Tin house was a nonfiction piece about search, you know, going to see her grave and who she was. So
1: did you want to write it in
0: nonfiction? And at what point did it become a, uh, fiction instead of a nonfiction?
1: You know, uh, you're right. The first thing I wrote about it was nonfiction and it was a piece for Tin house, um, for an issue they had called, I think it was called weird science. um, And I approached this first as nonfiction because that's my default. That's where I start. And I decided that I wanted to write this as fiction because I wanted to try and write a novel. It's the thing I wanted to try and do. And because what research there is about Lulu Hearst, she wrote an autobiography and I read it. But that autobiography doesn't let you into who she was as a person. It gives me good information about how she did her tests and where she went. Um, But I wanted to imagine really why she did what she did and what it felt like to be her. And this book just called out to be fiction. So I figured I'd see what that was like.
0: Is the the autobiography that she wrote, is that available if uh, people want to find that as well?
1: It is, um, yeah, there's a book called The Georgia Wonder, and it's a compilation by a man named Barry Wiley, and that's acknowledged in my book, and he put together her autobiography and articles about her from the period. It's a compilation, and that's how I found it, and that's where I read it, Um and it also is actually available in the library in Madison, Georgia, in their um, archives section. So I did go and handle a vintage copy of the autobiography in their reading room with the white gloves and, you know, the whole thing you do with archival paper. Um, and it was fabulous. But, yeah, that is a, that is available. I think it can be ordered um, um, maybe, I don't know, online or in a library. Okay. It's not currently in print, I don't think.
0: Okay. I'm going to have to find that and, and check that one out too. So this mm-hmm. book in a way, it sort of exists at the intersection of fiction and nonfiction because uh, Lulu Hurston, you note this in your author's note, she was a real person. And right. so, so I wonder, do you ever, I mean, do you think about like what would the real Lulu might've, might've thought of this? I mean, she's the rare, yeah. real, she's a real but fictional character in your novel.
1: Yeah. I, I think a lot about what the real Lulu Hurst would have thought about this. And I think that in the novel, I've been true to who she was emotionally or true to what I understand her to have been as a person, at least as a, as a kid. I mean, in the book, she's a teenage girl. Um, I feel like I have a picture and I think I got this research idea from you. I have a picture of her that I bought on eBay, which is a, page from Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly from 1884. And it is an article about her doing her tests, right? it's here in my office. But her picture is in it or a a lithograph. Um, And I look at that and she watched me write this book. And I know this sounds all spooky and weird, but I had that up on the wall in my studio. And I feel like somewhere she's okay with this. Um, So I like that. I don't know that would consider herself a feminist icon. The word didn't exist when she existed. Um, I don't know how she'd feel about that, but I think that she would be happy with this book.
0: One thing about Magnetic Girl, one way that I see it is it's sort of a road novel. And by that, I mean that the characters are often traveling uh, because she went on the road and performed at vaudeville theaters everywhere. I think you do a great job of describing Lulu's uh, and her parents' awe of big cities. I mean, I imagine a rural girl from that time going to New York and Washington and Baltimore. So if you don't mind, if you could read the long paragraph starting on page 117.
1: The train's whistle was far away, but it was piercing enough to twinge my back teeth. I'd heard that whistle a thousand times, but never from the platform coming for us, from me. Eight o'clock in the morning in Town would be the same in Atlanta. Hours would pass before we arrived, but right now it was five o'clock in the morning in a place far away as California, where people were only now starting to wake. Miners were probably digging for gold. Time was as hard to hold as a string of fish. If the train could go fast enough that we'd meet ourselves coming around again, three members of the Hearst family plunging south toward Atlanta, passing four members of the Hearst family happy at home, how perfect that would be. Why couldn't such a feat be a fact of natural philosophy?
0: You know, that line about uh, beating yourself coming and going, that's uh, a Flannery O'Connor story. Is it everything that rises must converge says you mm-hmm. might meet yourself coming and going? I don't have the line ex- in front of me, but it just, just occurred to me as I heard that. So, yeah, this this time period is really interesting. I mean, they're in awe of electricity, which was a novelty at a time. As you mentioned, telephones were just coming onto the scene. Um, mm-hmm. The vaudeville shows, I like there's a part where there are cats doing tricks on balance beams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah yeah. You know minstrel shows there's a, a reference to that um yeah i mean the civil war hangs over the south at this time it's only 20 years after so you know yeah you know near reconstruction how do you i mean talk about this time period and how do you put yourself in the reader in the 18 i mean I think you do a great job of creating this world but how did you do that as a writer and how hard was it to set a story in this time period
1: I love historical fiction. I have read historical fiction since probably junior high school, you know, starting, of course, with Yale Doctorow's Ragtime, um, most recently the uh, Norman Locke um, American novel series like American Meteor and John Sayles' wonderful novel, um, A Moment in the Sun. So I've spent a lot of time since I was a kid just reading about other times in America, and I have a particular fondness for the Gilded Age. I don't know why it was a very um, unfair time in America. But one of the things that fascinated me, and again, this goes back to the magic and mystery of bodies and how women are seen and how people are seen, is electricity was new in this time period. And there's references in the book to a boy being fried because he handled a wire, and people feeling that it was as bright as a thousand suns, um, which I think is a reference that I read in Harpers or something of the period. And what happened is that, to me, the 1880s in America was a time when technology was coming in, there was a looming fear of the 20th century in terms of people having power, in terms of women getting outside of the home to work and to be educated, in terms of um, recent emancipation of African Americans, recent as in 20 years, um, the beginning of technology, and how unsettling that is for the average person, right? Life is not what I knew it was, What do I do with it? And that was fascinating to me about the 1800s. And in writing about it, I really had to figure out how people navigated the world, the kind of language that they used. Um, I had a reference earlier in the book where somebody says somebody had a heart attack, and I took it out because um, one of my readers pointed out to me that that phrase didn't exist at the time, Um, a heart attack. So it was was wonderful uh, information to figure out how people lived.
0: You, know, you did a great job with it. I mean, I wrote you know, a novel that takes place in 1955, and I found that hard. Oh, enough. I
1: love that book. I, I found Online. that.
0: Online. Yeah, thanks. I found that hard enough, but uh, eight the 1880s, I, I don't think I, I could do.
1: Um, well, you know, the 1950s and the 1880s, neither of us were alive then, so there is an element of research and immersion. And the other thing to remember is that people are people. I've had people read this book and say, how do you know how so-and-so felt about this. And I don't. I know how I would have felt. And that's the same, isn't
0: it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you write <laughs> Lulu's sections in the book, which I think are the the majority of the book are her first person, her first person right. voice telling the story. But you have sections about her father uh, in third person. And I th- think that it's, it's seamlessly done. And, you know, and it's not an easy move to make in a novel that doesn't distract the reader and can keep the reader going in the narrative. Uh, so I think you're to be applauded for the way you handled the two characters and first person for one and third person in another. I mean, it's not something in a fiction workshop you would, you would advise somebody to try. No, so it's I a, don't. I don't like my students to do it. Yeah, it's a high it's a high wire act, and you you know you you pulled it off. So um, talk about that decision and why you did it that way. And maybe tell us a little bit about the father's character.
1: Sure. Um, As you say, Lulu is written in first person and I did that. uh, And that was the result of a number of revisions. I think she was in third person in one version, but Lulu's in first person, because I really felt like I was inhabiting her and I needed the reader to see the world through her eyes and, she is naive about a lot of things because she's a teenage girl. But the father is in third person and there's three or four sections in the book where it's the father's time and he is um, in third person. And the reason I did that was the reader has to know things about the father and his background and the weight he's carrying, if you will, that Lulu does not know. And she doesn't know it until later on in the book. So in a sense, I'm trying to create kind of a vanishing point where Lulu knows things and we know things as the reader. And then we also know things about the father as readers and we are waiting. There's an element of suspense. When will these two uh, pieces of information uh, collide and how will that change Lulu, which it does. Um, And also we move back in time. If the book starts in 1883 in the Lulu's present, it goes back to, uh, the father as a young man, um, as a soldier in the civil war. And he did serve, uh, in the civil war. Um, I believe he was in Hardy's troops. I'd have to verify that. And I had him behaving in a way that I'm sure he did not behave. Um, So that's where a fictional element comes in, too. I've given him a background that I don't believe he had in real life, and I have him behaving in battle in a way that I'm sure he did not behave. Um, But that goes towards fiction. Uh, So that's why it's in third person for the father whose name was William Hurst, and he is Will Hurst in the book.
0: You know, I think about it now. In some ways, it's sort of like she was the child prodigy who he pushed into something. And, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. she, she became who she was because of his uh, his desire. plans, his, his plans and yeah. desire. Actually, so the book's a lot about, you know, I think he's a, he's a, a major character. Obviously, she's the main character, but he's a huge part of the book and why she was. She's a, she's a young woman, too. She's even a teenager mm-hmm. at this point. So her father right. was a huge influence.
1: Right. Um, and one of the things that drove me in reading her real story was when you're a teenager, and I can speak as a teenage girl, but when you're a teenager, there is generally a parent, an adult figure, who is your guiding light. Oftentimes for girls, it is their father. And your father, you want to do what your dad wants you to do. You love your dad, and in a way, your father is your first love. And if he comes up with an idea that seems a little wacky, but you want to do right by your dad, you do it until such a time that you start to think, maybe this isn't who I really am. So that's part of what, what I'm trying to accomplish in this book.
0: Okay, and also tell me a little bit about, um, in addition to Lulu and her father, their little brother Leo, who's actually not yeah. on stage a lot in this novel, but he plays yeah. a major part in her motivation. So tell me a little bit about the character of Leo.
1: Yeah. Leo is entirely a confection of mine. She did in real life have two brothers. I believe they were older brothers. Um, And I made Leo up. And he is her younger brother. And she has a great love for him. And he has a great love for her. And there is a mishap when she is caring for him. He's a baby and she's a little girl. And there's a mishap. And she misinterprets the outcome. Of that mishap and that is one of the things that drives her to agree in the novel that drives her to agree to go on stage as the magnetic girl um, and Leo becomes he is a major character in the book because he is part of Lulu's impetus for, for doing what she does but as she comes to understand who he is as a person and again this goes to how we are perceived right Um, how people see us, how we want to be seen. Uh, As she comes to understand how to perceive him appropriately, that changes how she lives in the world. And he develops literally more of a voice in the book. In earlier parts of the book, they communicate almost telepathically. And I don't mean that literally. They weren't, you know, having brain, you know, Transmissions, but if you love someone, particularly if you love a sibling or a child, don't you feel like sometimes you can hear them in your head and your heart, even if there's not words coming out of their mouth? Yes. So that that is what was happening there.
0: Yeah. The uh, I quoted earlier the Atlanta Journal-Constitution review that talks about this novel addressing feminist anxieties. Um, how does this? How does this novel you know, do that? Like, how does it address maybe feminist issues of today? And your mm-hmm. interest in you talked a little your interest in women and women's bodies. Mm-hmm. T- talk a little bit about how this is you know relevant uh, now.
1: Yeah, I am very much a feminist. I am always a feminist. And when you asked what the real Lulu Hurst would have thought of this novel, I think I pointed out that she would not have considered herself a feminist hero. It's not a word she would have known. Um, this is happening concordantly to First Wave Feminism, to Susan B. Anthony, to the beginnings of the suffragist movement. Um, one of the books I teach my undergraduates is um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, which took place approximately this time. My feeling about what Lulu is doing here, and I love the Atlanta um, Journal-Constitution Review, I thought it was very insightful, is What's happening with the Lulu Hurst character in the novel is that she is a teenage girl, and I was an awkward teenage girl. She was an awkward teenage girl. I think in real life she was she was tall. She was ungainly, um, and when you're a teenager, the world denies you power, it denies you agency, particularly if you're a girl, particularly if you're a girl in the 1880s, particularly if you're a girl in a rural community in the 1880s. So you keep adding this on here. And like anybody, I think this character wants to decide how she wants to live in the world. She wants to make her own decisions. She wants to be seen in a way that agrees with her. And she goes through these performances where she is lifting men, where she's throwing people with a walking stick. She's not, actually. I can explain what's happening. Um, And people are both afraid of her and enamored of her and maybe making, you know, off-color jokes about her that she doesn't understand. And she starts to realize This is not how I want to live in the world. So in terms of a feminist narrative or in terms of that kind of thinking, this is a story about power on one level in that she has electrical or magnetic power in her hands and can convey tricks upon people on the stage. But on a deeper level, uh, it is a story about how does a young woman understand that she has power over her decisions and how she lives in the world.
0: Do you think that, are there any contemporary figures or more recent figures in America who you might compare to Lulu?
1: You know, I was thinking about that. It's a great question. Um, There's a part of me that says, is her name Emma Gonzalez, the girl who, the teenager who became a voice uh, after the Parkland shootings in Florida? Um, Maybe Emma Gonzalez, not because she is performing a magic trick or because she is doing a hoax because she is not, but maybe because she is a teenage girl who is speaking out about how the world should treat her.
0: Okay. No, that's a good one. That's a good, yeah, I can, I can see her now now that you, that you talk mm-hmm. about her. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got one last question for you about the magnetic girl. You, okay. na- you named the newspaper reporter for the Town Appeal which is the uh, was there was there an actual Cedartown appeal? I mean, I know the Cedartown Standard was the newspaper.
1: Yeah, I made up the name appeal.
0: Okay, you made up the appeal. Uh, you also made up a reporter uh, for the Cedartown Appeal, who's in, near the end of the book, named Mr. Starnes. And I want to mm-hmm. get this on uh, recording here. Does this mean when the m- movie comes out that I get to play Mr. Starnes from the newspaper?
1: You're, can you help us sell the property? <laughs> Yeah, um, of course you can. I hereby tell you that you can be Mr. Starnes in a walk-on.
0: Fantastic. I'll look forward to that. I'll, I'll go ahead. You and remember st- I
1: emailed you and said I was going to name the reporter after that,
0: you? That's right. That's right, you yeah. did. So I, I I appreciate that. It's uh, it's an honor mm-hmm. to have my name in, in the book there. So thank you very when much.
1: When I wrote that scene, when I wrote that scene, I could see you in there taking notes. You were in my head being the reporter in the scenes where Mr. Starnes is present.
0: Good. And he he's a respectable character too. Well, it's, it's, oh yeah, he's a good guy. As respectable as a newspaper reporter can be, I guess. So uh, yeah, so thank well, you. Thank yeah. you for doing that. You're welcome. So going back before The Magnetic Girl, you wrote uh, two books of nonfiction, including a memoir. Um, You Actually, you spoke to a graduate uh, nonfiction writing class that I taught recently back in the fall. And you said that you found, having done both, having done nonfiction and writing memoir and then having written a novel, that you found fiction harder. Tell me a little bit Mm -hmm. about that.
1: The thing that I found difficult, and it, you know, I've got this background in nonfiction, and before that, I have a background in documentary television production, and so I am dyed in the wool nonfiction person. So I set a challenge for myself to write fiction, and I found it difficult because in nonfiction, you don't make stuff up, right? And if you do, you sort of wave a flag and say, you know, I believe or I dreamed. And fiction doesn't have those parameters. It was like learning a new dance or learning a new athletic behavior. I'd say athletic behavior because I'm so not athletic. But it was like learning a new sport. All of a sudden, the muscles that I'd been used to using, I wasn't using, and I, was, I had to develop new ones. So it was difficult for me to give myself permission at first to make up a character or to say, okay, I know that she performed on this stage in this city, in this time period. But what did she actually do? What order was she on the bill? Were there dancing cats or um, a guy playing a cello before her? I don't know. I get to make it up. Uh, Once I allowed myself to do that and immerse myself in what that world was like, then it was fun.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm just the opposite. I think that writing uh, creative nonfiction, where you have to stick to the facts and tell the story and be honest is difficult. I, I feel like I have I guess maybe because I've written a lot of fiction, but I felt like mm-hmm. I've got handcuffs put on me that I can't do everything that I want to do when I write uh, nonfiction. So I guess it's probably, maybe it depends on where your foundation as a writer comes
1: from. I think so. I think it has to do with how we're trained. Because I read fiction and nonfiction pretty much equally. I'm not going to say I only read this or I only read that. But my training, as I said, is in nonfiction and before that in documentary television, which is nonfiction.
0: Yeah. So in their, your book, Invisible uh, Sisters, you took on really just a heartbreaking story. And I'm, I'm in great admiration of people who can write you know, deeply personal memoirs and personal stories about about themselves that uh, with such honesty, the the way that you did so, and then you also wrote a book about writing about grief. So tell me a little bit about mm-hmm. the impulse to write about that story, yeah. and why so many so many do write stories of their lives that are uh, that are challenging to tell.
1: Difficult, yeah. Invisible Sisters is my memoir about growing up in here in Atlanta in the nineteen sixties as the oldest of three daughters of, uh, parents who came to the South to work in the civil rights movement. We came here in 1965. Um, and my two younger sisters, uh, became terminally ill, one with leukemia and the other with a very rare, uh, blood disorder called Kostmann syndrome, which turns out is the exact opposite of leukemia. And the reason I wrote this book, and I, I loved my sisters very much and, and, um, My sisters are both dead. My parents are both dead now. Um, Is we are all asked the question, do you have any brothers or sisters? We ask it. It is asked of us. And I didn't know how to answer it. Because if I said I do and they're dead, I've given strangers more than they want. And if I say I don't, I'm lying about people I love, including myself. So how do I tell such a difficult story to myself? right, before I can tell it to anyone else. Um, So a great deal of research went into that book as well, reading medical records, looking at family documents. um, And so Invisible Sisters is the story of what, until recently, defined my life. How do I tell this story? How do I honor people that I love? And the thing about writing memoir is that, you know, Jim Gideon, wrote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I've always loved that quote. But in the past maybe 10 years, neurological studies have come forward from Dr. James Pennebaker at UT Austin, uh, from other people who say that um, writing about trauma, we neurologically need to do this. Our brains need to figure out how to frame the story so that we can go on and live the lives that we have.
0: Okay, no, uh, that certainly would make sense, and why we want to talk about these things as opposed to keeping them locked away.
1: Yeah, and then there's the craft of telling, you know, it's one thing to cry on your therapist's couch, which is a valuable thing to do, and it's another thing to tell a story with character and dialogue and suspense and plot protagonist, antagonist, all the things that we need to have in fiction, but that come from from real life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me a little bit about about yourself. I know you uh, from your memoir that your parents were progressive Jewish parents who settled in Atlanta, and I believe mm-hmm. they're from the Midwest, right? Tell me a little bit about your family and how you ended up in Atlanta.
1: My father uh, was from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, so mid-Atlantic, and my mother was from uh, Boston, from the South Shore, from Quincy, Mass., And they met and married at Brandeis University, which is in Waltham, Mass., which is outside of Boston. And we lived in Harrisburg and then Detroit. My dad worked for the National Labor Relations Board because his father was a a labor attorney, pro-union labor attorney. And he actually, my grandfather actually argued a case before the Supreme Court um, in favor of labor unions and won. Uh, and my father moved us down to Atlanta in 65 because he was working for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was uh, at the time very involved in the civil rights movement because the ILG worked for fair wages for people who worked in the mills. And this was also right after the Civil Rights Act became law and the Voting Rights Act. So he was very involved in that. And so my sisters and I grew up here, or as far as Susie grew up and, and me. And we were in Atlanta in the 60s and 70s, which was a very progressive, interesting time. And now I live here again because I love it.
0: So do you think of yourself as a Southern writer?
1: You know, I think of myself as a Southerner, definitely, which always made my mother the Bostonian kind of cringe. She didn't she couldn't quite get that. But I don't know that I'm a Southern writer. I mean, what is a Southern writer? I would love to be in the category of Flannery O'Connor and and Eudora Welty. Uh, They are Southern writers. But I don't know what makes a Southern writer other than the fact that I live in the South and my characters so far are Southern people. Not sure how to answer that.
0: Yeah, I don't know how you define, I guess if you... From the south, and you write about the south. You're a southern writer. Would be it'd be a simple definition? I well, I've lived in you know in the north now for almost 20 years, but I still do think yeah. of myself as a, you know I lived in the south till I was 33. So I, I think of myself as yeah. like a southern writer. But uh, you know, I like to be in that group with. Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor and the many, oh, yeah, the many, many other writers. I wouldn't writers say no. So, yeah. So oh, I, sure. If I could be part of that club, uh, I would uh, even just, you know, way on down the list from them. But I mm-hmm. think that that's where it comes from. So I think it's interesting. Yeah. You talked about um, your parents were progressive, you know, Jewish parents in Atlanta, but uh, also that your, you as an eight-year-old attended Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. Tell me about what you were at eight. I think you would be able to remember that pretty well. Tell us about what you, about that.
1: Yeah, I wrote about it in Invisible Sisters, and, and I was fortunate to do a piece for NPR about it in a memorial year for Dr. King. My father, as I said, worked uh, peripherally in the civil rights movement, and I think he was acquainted with Dr. King. we were not, you know, the best of friends, but he was acquainted with him. And when Dr. King was shot, my father went to Memphis um, with a bunch of people, and there's a photograph of him that I saw in the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, where he is holding a poster that now hangs in my downstairs hallway that says Honor, King, and Racism. And my father went to the funeral that April day in 1968, and he brought me with him. And my, Susie and Sarah, my little sisters, were too young to go, because if I was eight, they were six and two. And my mother and father agreed that this was part of my legacy. There's a theory in Judaism or a phrase in Judaism called Tikkun Olam, and my parents were not religious Jews, but they're cultural Jews, and Tikkun Olam means, loosely means repair the world. So I was eight, and my father took me because I think he wanted me to see what violence does and what hate does and what kind of a world I was inheriting and what I needed to be aware of to help change it. And I have a very distinct memory of, you know, as we walked towards the, the casket, an open casket in Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, being lifted up to look in the casket and see Dr. King in the casket, um, and then being set down and walking on out of the church. And um, it was very moving and very kind of scary, because I was eight and he was a dead person. Uh, but I knew who he was, and I knew how important this was. And wow. It was, a, it was a watershed moment for me, I mean— yeah, And I tell my students now when they talk about Dr. King, I teach um, undergraduate creative writing, I remind them that I was at his funeral because I want them to know that this is not ancient history. They know somebody who was there, and that helps keep the dream alive, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point, and it's it's not as long ago as Lulu Hurst was. It was uh, right. in your lifetime, and, and you were there. Um, well, you worked in television for a long time uh, before starting to write prose and write nonfiction and now, now fiction. So tell us a little bit about your, your work in TV and maybe how you started writing prose and ended up
1: with <laughs> I worked behind the scenes in television. I uh, worked in television shows in Los Angeles in the 80s that, oh my gosh, on Sick of the Night on a show called Name That. I was the music coordinator on one iteration of Name That Tune on uh, some music videos. I was a production assistant, and then I was a production coordinator. There was a game show called Fantasy with Peter Marshall and Leslie Uggins, which tells you how old I am. And, you know, I was backstage in the, in the, in the, dealing with contracts and paperwork and cue cards. And gradually I moved up through that you know, to become a production manager. So I was dealing with cruise sheets and call times and insurance and things like that. And I did that for a number of years in Los Angeles And then came back to Boston where I had gone to college and worked on some documentaries in Boston for some um, television stations and production companies. And then came back to Atlanta because this is where my friends were. My family was gone from here, but this is where I feel most comfortable. And I worked at a large cable network that we all know for many, many years. And when I left there, I was... um, the executive in charge of the post-production for long-form documentaries. So I was a production manager, I think, for um, long-form documentaries and worked on shows like Cousteau and Audubon. And it was fascinating and really interesting. And it was, in a way, about women and power because I was behind the scenes having power. Um, But I left that in gosh, I want to say 98, um, to go to graduate school uh, in creative writing. And although I still do some script consulting and have worked on short films, um, I no longer work in the industry. I I still teach screenwriting sometimes, but I have not um, been on a set as a member of the crew, above the line or below the line, in many years, which is okay. (laughs) It's very, very stressful.
0: Yeah, but after a successful career, you made the shift to become a writer. And mm-hmm. uh, how did you know what drew you to writing, and how was that getting started? So it's been like, what twenty twenty years since you did your uh, graduate work, your MFA.
1: I got my MFA in '06. Okay. So I went to graduate school late, um, and then Invisible Sisters came out in '09. I went to graduate school in my forties, so I had about twenty-five years as a television person. And I'd always written. I mean, you can ask my high school friends. When we were kids, I would write these long essays, sort of stream of consciousness things about all the fun we had at this party, or who was dating whom, or whatever. And I'd always written, and I'd always read. And Invisible Sisters comes very much from a lifetime of keeping journals. Uh, So I referred back to my journals in writing that book, and I still keep journals. Um, And I think that when I went to graduate school, which was at my mother's suggestion, um, it was just time to do what I really wanted to do, which was not be not help other people make art, but make my own art.
0: Well, that's great. That's great, and, and you've done a great job with this novel. So that's uh, thank you. Great to see. I'm, I'm you. I'm glad you glad you took that path. Well, I want to thank I wanted, you. I want you to tell me the story about in 2011, you and a group of Atlanta uh, writers, all women were featured in Vanity Fair magazine. So
1: tell us about that experience. Invisible Sisters had come out and um, a bunch of women, I should go get the magazine, but it can be found online. The person who was my publicist at the time called me up one day and said, like, what's your dress size and what's your shoe size and whatever. And I was like, what? And I gave her my clothing size and she said, there was some back and forth about this and it turned out that Vanity Fair magazine was going to do a photo shoot of a group of Southern authors, uh, Southern women authors. And they posed us at um, the Atlanta History Center at the Swan House, which is a beautiful, beautiful, elegant, historical home. Uh, And it was, I have to tell you, even though I have mixed feelings about the sh- the outcome of the shoot. It was great fun. I mean, I was with people I really like Susan, Rebecca White, Jocelyn Jackson, Natasha Trothaway. Um, so it was a- the day was entertaining, and the clothing, they- what the problem was that they posed us in front of this historical home, historic home, and they dressed us in sort of faux debutante, faux Scarlett O'Hara attire so it was contemporary ball gowns but it was ball gowns nonetheless um and there was sipping of tea and there was there were big hats for a minute but i only think one of us ended up in a hat um so the shoot was fun to do it was definitely you know high end promotion but what makes me uncomfortable about it is that it's a stereotype of southern women um as being sort of big hat-wearing, tea-sipping, passive, um, oh-my-goodness kind of folks. And every one of these women in this photograph um, wrote really powerful books. They wrote about family. They wrote about race. They wrote about identity. And we ended up sort of wearing big dresses and smiling. You had
0: to sort of Uh, scream. Also... Oh, go ahead. It sort of screams uh, Moonlight and Magnolias. Is, uh,
1: Moonlight and Magnolias. There was also only one person of color in that shoot among all those women, and I, I found that after the fact. You know, there's was nothing... I don't think I could do anything about it at the time, but I, that's a misrepresentation of the South and of Southern women and of Southern writers. Yeah. So on one hand, on one hand it was a, a crazy fun day to try on really... We were playing dress-up. I mean, it was insanely expensive clothing and the person who did my hair also did the hair for the Academy Awards. So, you know, that's not how I live. Uh, but in the end, it's not how I live. Yeah. Well, if Vanity Fair called me tomorrow
0: and wanted me to put on a pair of overhauls and a straw hat and ride around on the tractor to uh, sell, try to hope, sell one of my novels, I would probably do it. So uh, it's definitely.
1: And that's, that's the thing. Yeah, we do it.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's, I mean, the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture. One of the largest sections in there. My favorite one is the uh, the section on the Mythic South, and yes. there's so many ideas that uh, Southerners have about the South and that Americans have about the South. So uh, I wondered, you know, and you wrote a piece in Atlanta Magazine about sort of your regrets of the uh, Vanity Fair story. Um, how do you feel like maybe the the image of the South in America? is uh, is now and how maybe that piece you know contributed yeah. to it or you also I think one thing you write in there is that the southerners aren't always the backward ones because you've traveled around and have lived in other mm-hmm. parts of the country as well
1: yeah I wrote that line because I had I think recently been in Maine with family and it was in rural Maine where I saw a confederate flag slapping off the back of somebody's truck so you know this kind of narrow thinking is everywhere in terms of changing the interpretation of the mythic South, uh, The Bitter Southerner is a magazine, an online magazine that does a really wonderful job in representing voices of the South that are not always thought of, you know, and in promoting stories of the South that look differently at that mythic South. Um, I think that the world... I don't know the mythic South that I encountered. Certainly, I wrote about this in the in that Atlanta magazine story. Was you know when I went to a summer camp in upstate New York as a twelve year old, I was asked really um, reductive questions. Uh, but that was also nineteen seventy two. Um, I don't know how the rest of America sees the South right now. I can tell you that. With um, Georgia passing what they're calling the heartbeat bill certainly doesn't speak well for the South. I can tell you that with the outcome of the recent gubernatorial election in Georgia doesn't speak well for the South. Uh, but I also want to be very clear that as a Southerner, you know, we are not all narrow-minded and backward. You know, I think that the South, both the rural South and the urban South. Um, is very can be very forward looking, and um, it's our job as forward looking people to um, be inclusive and to welcome change that is fair and equal uh, to everyone. Yeah, the one. The
0: the one good thing I can say about Donald Trump is that he's not a southerner, and uh, because <laughs> you know being like living in you know near Philadelphia, New Jersey, and having a lot of friends in right. New Jersey and New York. If he was from Georgia, I would never hear the end of it. but I, I remind,
1: you know it's a good point.
0: I remind my New Jersey wife and um, people up here that he's one of yours. He, he's not. <laughs> He's not ours. Well uh, that's
1: right. Uh, that's right. You know, you know the, we we've got Lester Maddox and George Wallace, but they got Donald
0: Strong. <laughs> yeah, we've got we got a list of our own that I'm not proud of, but uh, Trump is uh you know, out of the heart of New York. So don't don't forget yes, that when you when you run yeah. down if you do run down the south. Um, when you run us down, yeah. Well I wanna wanna wrap it up here, Jessica. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, wanna maybe find out, you know, what you're working on now. And uh, I maybe, mean, what's your your plans for for forthcoming pieces?
1: Well, right now, what I'm doing is grading finals. So that's that is the center of my life is grading final portfolios for my terrific students. Um, I'm not sure what I'm working on yet. There's a family story that um, I've been developing, and I don't know if it's fiction or nonfiction yet. It hasn't told me. I've written about twenty or thirty pages based on a collection of somewhat mysterious family photographs and mysterious in terms of their origin. Um, and I don't know yet if it's fiction or nonfiction. I'm going to keep writing and see because some of it's fiction. I've written some of it is fiction and some of it's nonfiction. And I'm kind of sampling both directions and seeing which rings more, uh, which rings more clearly to me. All right. Well, great. Well, that's really-
0: mysterious. Well, good. We'll we'll stay at it and hopefully we'll have another great book from you in a couple of years. So uh, congratulations on the novel, The Magnetic Girl. Everyone should go to JessicaHandler.com and check it out. She's doing a lot of events and readings and there's information about her other books on her website as well. So check that out. So, Jessica, thank you for uh, joining us on the Writer's Latitude today.
1: Sam, thank you so much for having me. I'm just always glad to talk to you.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jessica.
1: Thanks a lot, y'all. Bye-bye.